welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. In this conversation today, I'm going to be talking with David Drake. And David is a top, he's a top guy. I really appreciate him. And I really appreciate his sincerity in, in this field of coaching, what he's brought to the field and beyond. How We're going to talk today about why David has reimagined his work and um, no longer calls himself a coach in a way, uh, how that label can be limiting. How are we being, or each of us being invited to drop that label and what happens when we do? We'll talk about why he pivoted his business. Uh, we'll talk about why we need to change the game of learning itself. And we'll talk about narrative coaching too. Um, we talk about a lot of stuff in this. We talk about some of the qualities that the integrative development practitioners develop in his new program. Why that's so relevant for these times. In general, our conversation is going to be a lot about how is learning and development changing in these times. Some fascinating stuff David says about the actual work he does with clients. Uh how he breaks things down to the smallest thing that he can practice and help them learn in the coaching session itself. I think that's fascinating. We talk about that in more in the second half of the conversation. Okay, so all that being said, I would invite you to share this podcast if you feel inspired to do so. I'd love as many coaches out there to benefit uh, it from benefit from it as possible. And if you feel like joining our community, you can do so by heading to coachesrising.com and putting your name in the sign-up box on the homepage there. All right, so here's the podcast with David Drake. So David is a coach and a thinker and an author. He created, he wrote the book, Narrative Coaching. That's a great book. And he is, has the Moment Institute online at momentinstitute.com. And he's presented to uh, 25 universities and associations around the world. He's taught this narrative coaching methodology to over 20,000 practitioners. And he founded Integrative Development as a new model of learning and development. We're going to talk a little bit about his... Uh, program the integrative development practitioner and why that's relevant for these times in the sign up box to stay in the loop so how are you doing david good to see you joel yeah, yeah it's been a while since we met in amsterdam i think that was like maybe even like four or five years right. five years ago um, yes yeah. I, I think that's right yeah yeah um, and I'd love to talk to you about a lot of things today, but um, I, uh, of course, there's the whole uh, narrative coaching work mm-hmm. you brought into the world, and uh, I want to go into that, but I just, I got really excited looking at your website, and as we just touched base before we started proper, uh, you know, it resonates with something that we really feel at Coaches Rising and, and are inspired by, um, so perhaps you could share something about um 
Yeah, like you said on the on the start of your on the front of your website, we decided to pivot our business around our global learning community, and uh, we need to change the game, um, yeah. not just move the pieces around. And I just wondered what you meant by that. Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, as you know, I've been sort of sort of pushing the boundaries of coaching since the very beginning, and a lot of where narrative coaching came from was I I didn't really find a value to myself or my clients that sort of more overt kind of goal orientation, extroverted drive. Um, it appeals to some clients, but it just didn't match with what I knew about how humans actually change. Um, and so I've had a number of uh, various opportunities over the years to travel the world and teach narrative coaching. And um, kind of what I found even before the pandemic hit was that the world was shaping up in a way that if we only had the coaching uh, vernacular, the coaching uh, system to offer our clients, that we would be missing a lot of the complexities of what they're facing. And so uh, just fortuitously, we were already pivoting uh, the business to include more than coaching, uh, but use the narrative principles to design kind of a freer way for our, our practitioners to work. And the fact that we did that early and then the pandemic came uh, we had a really good showing last year, um, um, and so just really excited to see uh, kind of where this goes and kind of rethinking, you know, what is coaching at its best. And if we were to late, if we remove the word coaching out of the equation and just did what we knew worked and loved, what would we be doing? And um, so, yeah, that's sort of at least part where we've started from. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I seem to be in this conversation with more people. I was talking to Paul Byrne, who leads the uh -huh. leadership circle group in Europe. And uh, he was also saying like, our coaches need to be, uh, we need to be expanding the sense of what coaching is and um, not ring fencing it and, and, mm -hmm. and innovating and evolving because the field is going to get disrupted and yeah. it needs to be relevant to uh, the times, you know, and, yeah. and um that that's not not always the case with coaching actually i wonder what, yeah you, maybe you could share what you think about that and even maybe you were saying about the the western medicine analogy yeah. and sure yeah. well i was just sharing with uh with you joel uh, about i've had a sort of a chronic neck problem over the last six months and i've always availed myself of alternative medicines but <clears throat> found that in this particular instance that the western approach uh, really didn't have much to offer. And it really struck me when I was talking to the last uh, doctor who I actually, I think was really trying to find something to do uh, in a way that is analogous to coaching that he, you know, here's somebody who devoted an enormous amount of his life to studying the human body and how it works and how it breaks down and how to heal it. And yet because of the way that uh, healthcare is often now positioned and paid for and just described, he was actually quite limited in his range of options most of which were quite invasive and kind of really didn't address the issue. And I thought, do we not fall into that trap sometimes as coaches where we get caught up in our, our framing or our formulations and we, that's all we see and that's all we know. And so we have this vast array of knowledge about the human and the human body, the human psyche, the human spirit and soul. And yet we could, and maybe it's because we have to sell it as something. So we sell it as coaching and then coaching becomes everything and nothing. Uh, but I'm just wondering, again, we, 
in our work now, we're focusing less and less on what the delivery is called and more and more about what it actually offers. Right. Because what why do that? Like what happens when you focus more and more on what it offers? Well, so so in our integrate so I I I took um, the learning and development theory that underpins narrative coaching, and then married that to my realization that over the years, uh, pretty much all of my courses I've des designed, all of the client projects I've done, have taken a very sort of um, unique view of how uh, learning and development actually happened. So without going too far down that road, I'll just say I ran a program for a month for leaders at the top of a state government with no curriculum. Because what, what are, in the middle of a pandemic and some natural disasters, you know, what is the curriculum going to offer them? What they wanted was human presence, connection, uh, ways of being together in grief and, 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 and innovation. And so for me, what I started to realize is that when you're sitting with another human or a group of humans, that their needs from you are going to uh, evolve over the course of the conversation. And so we th thought if we're, uh, when we're always then asking ourselves, oh, is this coaching or not coaching? And then we worry about that. And as opposed to what if we could just ground ourselves in some core ethics and principles and practices and morph our role with our clients as the conversation evolved. And so um, just like it does in life. Uh, and so we've, we've, our new program really is basically, we've now sort of uh, synthesized all that into a single program to teach people how to think and be like an ID practitioner, integrative development practitioner, onto which coaching could be one of the ways that shows up. So you might be in a conversation uh, and, and maybe it's even a strategic conversation or a leadership team development conversation. And then there's an awareness that emerges in the room around this unexpressed grief for changes in the business, changes in the market, uh, maybe a loss of a key player. Um, and there's no space in the rush of business to address human grief. So it doesn't become a grief counseling session, but there might even be like five or 10 minutes where you just acknowledge the grief, help the group do a little bit of work to process it, and then enfold that into what's, what's happening next. And so our, our fundamental commitment in this work is twofold. One is what's needed next. That's all we're really focused on. And we've, we follow that into that space. And two, um, we're in service of the moment. What is this moment actually calling us to show up as or to pay attention to? Um, and we find that it's quite um, both, uh, a bit, I think, a bit intimidating at first for some of our practitioners or who are used to hanging on to their professional role and description. But it's also quite invigorating because it frees you to travel so much lighter with your clients. So I can now coach all day long and be no more tired than when I started because yeah. I'm no longer trying to coach them. Right. What? Yeah. I think, cause I think this is, you know, part of an, the leading edge of coaching Yeah. Um, where, you know, we're, or the evolution of coaching where we see that uh, the roles we held, the, the, the identity as a coach whilst also empowering has become limiting and, um, can actually, you know, you're saying it limits what we see, yeah. um, 
but it also creates perhaps um, it confines us into certain ways of uh, being that drain our energy. And just when you talk to me about what's needed next, and I think what was the second one you said, what's emerging? Uh, the second one was where our primary loyalty is to the moment. Yeah. To the moment, right. Yeah. So that was yeah. the name of the business. So we thought, and it, so it really uh, part of what we help our practitioners to uh, develop further is their comfort with the unknown. See, a lot of what all of us, and I go back to my doctor, they're under the illusion that I, I need to be in control of this conversation to be helpful, or I need to be in control of this diagnosis in order to be helpful, which is true. I've had cancer before, so I'm really glad I had a competent surgeon, a knowledgeable oncologist. Um, so I, it, it, so the expertise is, is extraordinary. Um, and I, I think about when I made a decision about what treatment to take after my surgery, I uh, was, it was a, you know, it's a complex set of, uh, of decisions. And I remember I was thinking about that while I was talking to my surgeon and I looked up on the wall and saw that he had a master's degree in literature from Columbia University in New York. I thought, ah, now I can ask him something I wouldn't have thought to ask him. And so I asked him, what would you do? Because he was about my age and he was quite open about that. And I said, that's sort of the conclusion I've reached as well. And so for me, it just has always inspired me about um, helping our uh, coaches and other practitioners just pay attention to what is this moment asking of us and what is it we need to pay attention to so that we can be of the highest value to our clients right yeah because I think that that's where a lot of the magic happens yeah where when we're able if we're caught in our kind of identity then um, we we can get caught in being a good coach trying to get somewhere um, deploy a method and yeah then there's this other space you're talking about whereby like we're welcoming the unknown we're, we're yeah. a connoisseur of what's emerging in the moment yeah. and perhaps we're holding space for that and um yeah there's something about that that's so so transformative you know yeah. it, that it perhaps opens up a wider transformative space which is embodied and emotional and emergent yeah and um perhaps even fits with like complexity as well. Like the, yeah. what comes up for you as I share that? Yeah, so again, I, being a story guy, that's what I think in terms of memories and stories, but as illustrations, but to your point, I was thinking about, um, I did a lot of work for a very well-known uh, tech. It was a sort of a large startup then, it's not anymore, but, um, and I think he was one of their very first employees was their, he was like the technology brains behind what they had actually built. And he uh, was getting ready to, um, uh, shockingly, in the middle of our coaching, he announced he was leaving the company. And so then, again, now I have to pivot on what we're actually going to be talking about, as opposed to getting better at that job. He's actually wanting coaching now about how to leave the job. I'll fast forward to the point. So in the course of the conversation, um, he I can't remember how it, caught, it came up. I think it was something I, uh, I knew that his wife was pregnant with a child. He had mentioned that. I asked her how that was going. And, and he used that as an open door to ask me if I was a parent. And, you know, coaches might have different opinions about whether they even answer the question or how they answered. And, uh, um, and I said, yes, I, I was. I have one child. And, and so he said, what was that like when you were first a dad? And so I said, there's something that he's wanting here. So let's just, let's just go with this. And so we had this extraordinary conversation about 
you know, I was writing my dissertation, running my business and having a small child at home. And he was, you know, working at a high tech startup and having now his second child coming at, coming. And, and we just had this beautiful connection as men about as parents, as dads. And, um, and then uh, the, the beauty of this whole thing was, and I said, and so what do you, what do you, why are you leaving in the end? He said, because I wasn't there at all for my first child or for my wife. And I don't want to do that again. I want to be there for my second child when he or she comes into the world. And uh, um, so I want to take some time out and go do that. And so this has been really helpful for me because it's given me the confidence that that's really what I want to be doing. But then the beauty of this was he said, and I'm starting to realize that there's this relational side of me that's just really not come out. He was like the king of checklists and to-do lists and tasks. He said, I don't, I don't think that's very helpful in right now. And I said, so what, what can you learn from this conversation about being a dad that might help you exit the company differently? And he said, you know, I prepared and he, and he showed me like a massive document because he had downloaded everything that needed to be done before he left for himself and by his team. And so he said, I don't think I need this. They're good. They know what they're doing. He said, I want to I want to coach them for my last two weeks to empower them as leaders to be able to be successful after I'm gone. And he said, I never would have thought of that at all, even as something I could or should do if we hadn't had this conversation about being a dad. So I didn't set out on this. I had no, this, I had no idea that this announcement was coming in the session. I had no idea we're gonna talk about being a dad. I did know that he was struggling to figure out how to exit the company uh, in the end. Uh, and so for me, it's like in service of what's trying to happen here, what is the story trying to get us to pay attention to? What is the moment calling us to show up as for me, I have to be let go of my ego, my agenda, my everything to what is being asked of me right now and how do I show up to make the most of it? And do you um, find that there's, do you find yourself deploying um, certain moves that you regularly make, you know, inside of following the moment? Um, yeah, because... You know, I imagine a lot of coaches listening are like, oh, that sounds great, you know, following the moment. Yeah. But, you know, then they might feel that pressure again of the company, you know, that has brought them in to yeah. work with clients and so on. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not. So again, just to clear up a misconception that some have, it's not just doing whatever shows up or wandering around a conversation because we're there for a reason. People are paying us money to help them achieve something. It's just our the humility to realize that we don't know what that's going to take or where that's going to take us. Um, and, and nor would we even, even know if that's what they actually really want. Um, all we know is that's, that's, that's the presenting inquiry or they're presenting a start to a journey. And so um, ironically, I was thinking about this the other day that um, so much of what's now informing both narrative coaching and integrative development yeah, comes from child psychologists. Um, so I think about Vygotsky and zones of proximal development. I think of John Bowlby and um, Mary Ainsworth and Mary Main about uh, attachment theory um, and, and several others. Just really rethinking what we know about adult learning and development. And so part of that we look at, um, I'm really attracted to Vygotsky's notion of these zones, and that's what helps it keep it contained in the sense of there's a zone of readiness, the zone of willingness, 
uh, and uh, for a client to show up. And so we hold this sort of space, this crucible for the work where we're trying to really understand what's the most significant thing we can be talking about here. So we're not one ping-ponging all over the conversation. We're just saying, here's, a, here's an arena that we're playing in. Here's something the person that said is important to them. And there's something about this that wants to happen, but we don't know what it is yet. Um, it's very rare that clients walk in and know exactly what they want. It just doesn't happen. And even if they do, they're almost always uh, amended as they go. And so we hold this space for them around a particular issue. And once we sort of identify what that crux is, and that's where we focus our energy. So we keep bringing them back to the present moment, not any present moment, but the one that's going to serve us to understand kind of what's most true and most important and most achievable for this person. Um, and so we find that because it's highly experiential, because it's quite holistic, I suppose, in a way that um, it um, is actually quite engaging and then allows uh, clients to do things that are more likely to be sustainable for them. Mm. Yeah. Um, how, how do you uh, to teach coaches to tune in to that moment, which is, you know, wanting the, the right moment you know, connected yeah. to what to what they want and what's emerging. So, so essentially, what um, what we teach is a philosophy more than anything. Um, so, I, uh, you know, there's a gazillion places to learn coaching skills, right? We don't we don't need any more programs really on coaching skills per se, or renaming or reframing coaching skills. What for us our our distinction is a philosophy of life, a philosophy of change, a philosophy of presencing, et cetera. Um, and so the primary, you know, just love it, you know, you would know from your own meditation experience, a lot of it just comes back to emptying our teacup again and again and again, so that we're more able to use what we think of as radical presence. Um, we use some of the attachment work on moments of meeting, like just really trying to find those really crystalline spaces in a relationship where, um, you know, the, the feeling of what wants to happen becomes quite palpable, I suppose. And so a lot of what we're doing is um, initially in the first, you know, few modules of our programs is helping coaches let go of their own ego in a way, let go of their own need to control, let go of their um, need to be the expert in a way um, and to start paying attention there's so much more that happens in conversations, even across Zoom, than we often realize. Um, and so we just have a whole series of, um, borrowing a lot from some of the um, Eastern traditions, uh, borrowing a lot from, uh, like I said, child psychology, of just kind of getting back to a more natural rhythm to how conversations happen. And the way we teach our, our students is basically, all of your expertise is only as valuable as it actually serves the client. They don't care what we know. They don't care what theories we studied. They just wanna feel better, feel healed, make progress on what's important to them. And so I said, just imagine that you've sort of taken everything you've known. So about four degrees. I walk into my client sessions with all my degrees in my back pocket now. I don't put them out front like I may have, maybe I used to do in the old days. Um, and then I only bring out the small pieces that might be useful in this moment to further this conversation or further the journey of this person. And so then I'm much more willing to trust um, silence 
trust our belief that the resolution is already present. We're not hunting for it. Uh, it's already there. We just can't see it yet. So if I can just relax. And um, I guess the last part of sale about that is it goes back to the classic uh, sort of Taoist phrase about letting the muddy waters clear. The reason we can't, the client has not achieved what they want often is because there's something they're not seeing that's already right in front of them. And so rather than try to build goals towards it or steps towards it, <clears throat> we just quiet ourselves and help the client quiet, quiet himself or herself um, to start noticing what's actually true for them. It, I get the sense as you speak that the coaches are playing the role of um, helping a client sort of um, shift their where they orient themselves from in the moment, but doing that not from, um, you know, coming in and immediately needing to change. Because I, yeah. I read some of your book and it's like, I really like that you you embrace, you include things like the paradoxical nature of change, yeah. you know, where yeah. it's really important actually mm. to connect to what is, you know. Um, and I think that's really powerful. Um, but then um, the coach is creating this space whereby then um, something settles and, and, and yeah. the clarity, something starts to emerge. And then right. you, you're attuned to what that is because you're yeah. in a very different space yeah. than where you were before, you know? And, yeah. and I think that's in a way like collectively what we're needing to do yeah. as well. Yeah, very much so. And, um, and, and, you know, you could put 100 clients in a room, all of whom ostensibly have the same request. I need to run better meetings. I... And I uh, need to galvanize my team in a virtual environment. And, and yet all hundred of them <clears throat> would need something different. And um, so it's in part why I stopped teaching in academia, because it was always this presumption that I knew and that I should organize what I knew in some format that would be entertaining and engaging. Um, and so I'm now using what I know uh, very differently. And, um, and so one of our principles, our core principles always has been that uh, people need new experiences, not not more explanations. Uh, we get caught up in our explanations, and um, in the end, I, I've just uh, again and again come back to um, the power of structured. What we think of a structured emergence and powerful experiences that people then can in, then integrate, and um, is really what they're after. Um, and so, it just said, well, we need to build a. Uh, so I said, well, if we're going to work this way, then I need to actually have done the theoretical development to understand and justify why I believe this works. So I've done that now. So I'm working on my next book on integrative development. And uh, we've just seen extraordinary um, shifts in our, our, our and our participants, not, not yet so much how, how they work, although that's changing as well, but more in who they think they are and how they think they are and, um, with their clients. Um, um, there's, yeah. there's so much in what you're saying um you said like structured emergence as well yeah. so i want to make sure we like take certain phrases and yeah you know tease them apart a little bit and it might be that we've kind of been talking about that in general but um what is structured emergence for you and um yeah how, how we how we actually facilitate that yeah it's a good question um so the analogy that i use is like um so if it's all pure, so if it's all pure structure, if you're a client, a coach who is really taken by your methodology and you follow a formula or a pattern, then you create good structure. Um, and that's sort of like analogous to a drinking fountain, a water fountain. The water fountains are useful if you're near one 
if you're not near one, like you're in the middle of a desert, it doesn't matter how many water fountains are back in the city, you're gonna uh, have a problem with enough water. Um, and so the, the issue with too, only structure, too much structure, it is it presumes you know need, you already know in advance we need to go there this is how we're going to get there we're going to bring this water fountain to this client over there which in some cases actually could be helpful so it's not necessarily wrong itself but it really limits what's possible because what if the client ends up you're doing this and the client then reveals that they're having an affair or they're you know they're just really despondent about their job and wait, wait, well, we're, over, we're almost all, almost there. We need to keep going over here. And the client's like moved all the way over there. And, and he said, well, now I have to like put in new plumbing and get the water all the way over there now. And then you're just exhausted moving water pipes all session long. And so, but, and then if you, and conversely, if you think about pure emergence and it's the same sort of theme, it's like a tsunami. It's like tons of water, but all, all at once and just like overwhelms, you know, and destroys uh, villages and and all areas, and so we we look at this uh, work as sort of like an estuary, right? It's a natural rhythmic dance between land and water, and uh, which and then and, and all the wildlife, the birds and the fish and other things, kind of move in and out of with the seasons, and and so we, it needs to be enough structure so that our our clients feel psychologically safe. They kind of know what we're doing. They feel confident in what we're doing. And at the same time, but that's not a linear path structure. It's a structure as in creating a crucible, a, a safe, strong space where whatever needs to happen, uh, happens. And so I've had clients say some pretty, uh, pretty dramatic things that most clients, when I tell them this, would like, oh my God, I never would have been able to tolerate that. I said, I don't, but I don't have to change that person. I don't have to control that person. They're having a strong emotion. So all I have to do is create a space for that emotion to exist in the conversation until we can process it together. Um, and so for me, structured emergence is how I've always worked. And now I have a phrase for it and it really, um, and then in any moment in time, I'm asking myself, do I have a sense that we need a little bit more structure here or a little bit more emergence? And kind of what's happening? And we're doing that like an estuary, it's ebbing and flowing as we're um, moving. And so a client might be getting to a very vulnerable moment in the conversation. So I might even move my chair in, if I, you know, back when we were in person, move my chair in just a little bit closer. I might orient myself a little bit closer to facing them. Why? Subtly, they want more safety and more structure because they're about to reveal something that unconsciously they know is going to be big for them. Other times clients are feeling quite expansive and quite agentic and accountable. Like they've had an epiphany like, hey, I'm gonna go do something now. I might you know, pull, push my chair back, give them more room in the, in the space so that whatever they're trying to find a way to express has all the room it needs because they need more space to emerge. Um, and so we're in this sort of ongoing dance around structure and emergence with our clients. I, I, I like that a lot that, um frame i because i think um i'm just thinking about my own coaching journey and where i've gone in all in on emergence you know and it's like yeah. uh you can get this sense of like blown out people get blown yeah. out you know because yeah. it's just yeah. all emergence you know and um some people really like that but uh you know but on the other hand if you have only structure then it can get very dry and, yeah. and formulaic yeah. and, and it's not real you know you're not having a real conversation 
in some yeah. way. So I appreciate that. Yeah. So knowing when to, you know, uh, apply which kind of uh, mode, you know, mm -hmm. mode of being. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. Um, so there's, 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 we could talk about, narrative coaching a bit more because we're kind of sure. in in that space and I, I do want to ask you about the the integrative development yeah. practitioner and i'm imagining there's overlapping kind of um elements to it but yeah just uh while we're on this topic of being with clients because sure. the narrative part is really intriguing to me in terms of how you start to elicit people's narratives mm. you know that that uh, might be uh, perhaps uh, outdated or ready to, ready to evolve and innovate. And, and how do you lend like, what are the leverage points for like, you know, helping people create new narratives or, or release narratives, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, um, just so a couple of key things that we uh, work with. So one is that we, um, we take a whole person approach to realize that as people are forming their stories in sessions, they're actually bringing parts of themselves into the stories that they may not even be aware of, some unconscious elements, um, because there's part of their psyche that wants to evolve. And so it's sneaking in little like Freudian slips or little pieces that are clues like, hey, look over here, because there's some parts of the story that the teller's not, you know, owning up to or aware of at the moment. And we, we give a lot of credibility to the story itself uh, and what it's trying to accomplish uh, in the conversation. And so a lot of what we're trying to do is, uh, is um, you know, I know David Wallen is an attachment writer, talks a lot about this, about a lot of our work around healing and wholeness is helping people to be aware of the relationship between their images and words and their somatic experience. So we're paying as much attention to the telling of the story as we are the content of the story. And so we're trying to help our clients uh, to be aware of almost like standing outside themselves and listening to themselves uh, tell that story. And going back to your, you know, your reference to the paradoxical uh, view of change from Gestalt. So we share that same uh, philosophy that we, I have no intent, I have absolutely zero interest in changing my clients. I care for them and I, and I want them to evolve. I, I hope that for them, but I found that when I was attached to them changing or evolving, I got, I got too caught up in my own stuff about wanting to be helpful or useful or demonstrate that I had value because they were paying me all this money. And now my first and foremost um, task is to welcome and witness the narrator. That's it. Invite them to be here now. And so for me, and not try to change anything. They may hate themselves for their story. They may feel just whatever they're it's all just part of their present experience so that's what we want to welcome it's there it's where it's already in the room it's already in the story whether we mention it or not so i found that you know clients often have so much judgment either internal judgment or external judgment about their story you should be that or you should be doing this or your, your 360 sucked on this and 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 it comes all this like swirl and so we're again we're just trying to get them to just be quiet and be present. It's all fine. It's all gonna be fine. Um, but we found that, um, you know, and Timothy Galway does a lot of great work on this as well, that the fastest way to move forward for most of our clients is to stand still. 
because then all the judgments start to drop. They're more honest with themselves. We give them tools to help them with that. And then we say, out of all that, out of this stillness now, or as much as you can muster, what seems true and important to you now? And that's where we set off on this journey. And then we use all the elements from their own stories, both to help them realize why they were stuck or whatever before, but also the, the, the potential for liberation is already in their own story and in their own telling. So it might be that at a certain part of their story that it maybe had been quite uh, negative at one point, there's this glimmer of hope and you, their whole voice raises or their body gesture shifts. And we go like, what's happening for you right now? What are you noticing in yourself as you're forming this story? Like, oh, I, I see that it wasn't always this bad. It was only this one episode that kind of derailed me. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. So if I just deal with this one episode, then I can get back on the path I was on. And so we're just um, serving as a witness, a steward of, their, of them and their, and their stories. And then we're using uh, the characters in their own story to help them understand themselves and what it is they wanna do next. Do you find that there's like, um, almost like a, you know, an alchemical process whereby somebody's story um you know once it's once it's kind of um they, they start to tell it in a certain way then there's like the seeds of a of a new mm. emergent story within that and uh, a new empowered story for example you know like yeah. they can actually it's not just them becoming conscious of their story but they actually can reimagine their story to you know to tease out what's wanting to emerge that will yeah. help them then embody it more, you know, like that connection yeah. you said between soma and narrative. Yeah. So I, I mean, for me, it's all alchemy. I mean, in the sense that there's the part of them that, like I said, wants to evolve, wants to grow, wants to mature, or heal, um, and we're trying to activate that. And so, through the course of their stories, uh, which are about often just like our dreams, are about you know, using real characters and things from our real life, but in them. You know, we're forming that story in a new age time. And so in the course of telling their story and coaching, they might include things they wouldn't tell their spouse or their, you know, their boss, but they would tell you. And so new material starts to come in. And so what we're trying to do is sort of, uh, as you would in alchemy, like distill down, like, what is the essence of your old story? Like what's keeping you anchored there or stuck there or uh, whatever your experience you're having? And then what is the, what are some of the seeds that are already latent in your own story? And in yourself, how do we distill those down to their essence and then begin through the alchemy of coaching, uh, begin to bring them into what we think of as a third space, a place where they can find a different path forward. And the beauty of this, but also the trust that we need to have as coaches, is that it's highly unlikely that you would have been able to predict that when you started. And so we don't worry about trying to understand. Uh, um, <clears throat> so I've, I've coached people who don't who speak a language I don't. I don't need to understand what they're telling me. I can guide them through physical activities. I can help. Then um, they know enough English where they can respond to basic questions for me. And I'm interested in supporting their journey, not mine. Um, and so for me, it just keeps the story alive in the room. And we have what we, what we call serious play. We have lots of fun with their stories in real time, um, but even if they're often about serious issues, uh, I find it just engages people in a way that a more didactic conversation does not, so.
Yeah. And you said like coaching people who don't speak the same yeah. language. That's, do you literally mean, uh, you know, like they're answering you in a foreign language, Yes. but you're, you're able to like sense from the way they're, you know, they're yeah. expressing themselves that, you know, um, so they're in a certain place or, you know, yeah. you can then follow up with a different question and. Yeah. And because I, I, yeah, because I, um, it's not something I would want. It's, I mean, you have to really stay focused. Um, but I, I mean, because we, you know, we all, you know, especially now with this whole virtual environment, you know, you would know this from coaches rising, you know, we're dealing with so many different cultures and languages and assumptions about coaching. Um, and I just find that when people, even ones that are from people for whom English is a second, third, fifth, whatever language, even the ones that are fairly proficient about it still will get closer to their truth in their native tongue. So again, our job is to serve our clients, not ourselves. So, and we use like, we use our classic sort of three chairs process. We use a lot of other sort of somatic activities. So I'm watching their face, their language, their body language, their, their shift and their, their energy level. And so I might just point out like, you know, you sat up straighter when you said that. I have no idea what you just said. doesn't matter. I don't need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so it's, you know, it, 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 it's not as, it's, I mean, there's, there are some limitations. I'm not saying we should all do this. I'm just saying, for me, it's an illustration of um, we sometimes get too enamored with our own understanding. And it may not be as necessary as we think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's just such a great, beautiful lesson from this. It's, it's difficult, though, isn't it? It is you difficult. Know, I can is. feel I can feel it myself, you know, where I'm like, yeah, yeah it's, tr- it's true for everyone else. But I'm pretty, yeah. uh, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm pretty great, you know. Yeah. But, but, but and I'll tell you why. Um, I'll tell you why. Um, in part, it's because one of the things I've been really exploring lately and uh, about um, is in our, our model, the last of our, in the narrative coaching model, our last four, the last of our four phases is called sustain. And it's uh, basically a return to the world with whatever a client has gained from coaching. It's the part that's the least sexiest. It's the least um, you know, dramatic often. It's, um, and it's often the one that's most important. We get caught up in our epiphanies and aha moments. And in the end, they don't often matter nearly as much as we think. Um, and the, the, you know, we're trying to help adults change narratives they may have had their whole life. And uh, I remember some research that's actually um, in a lot of our programs now that I've, I'm citing <clears throat> looks at the, um, the, they basically did a lot of research on management development programs. So a pre-program, program, and post-program. And then they looked at what percentage of the budget went to each of those three buckets. And um, the, uh, the, as you imagine, the program got like 85% of the budget and maybe 10% was pre-program and 5% was post-program. Then I looked uh, from both from their perspective and participants' perspectives, actual impact on business and on you know leadership or whatever the topic was, and it was almost the exact opposite. That the smallest value returned was from the program itself. That the post-program support, which got about five percent on average of budget, delivered fifty percent of the value to participants. And I think the same is which is. Why I don't do that's why I don't teach in academia as much anymore or do big university based programs because they have a place 
for other reasons, but from a pure learning and development perspective, they just don't return the value. And so I'm, I, then I extrapolate that to coaching and that we don't often get contracted for or paid for all that post-session support, but that's where clients make or break their journey. That's where the habits form or don't form. It's where things actually get put in play. And so we're um, in our own business, we're looking at how can we create um, engaging ways to support clients and sustain and focus less on, and then going by working in the moment, we have smaller packets of things they're working on, smaller shifts they're trying to make, which accrued over time actually lead to a huge change. But it's almost like, you know, discover, learn, experience, experiment with it, find a way to sustain it, rinse and repeat. And so we find over time, and a lot of our students say that, you know, I wasn't quite sure what we were doing all the time. You know, these, I couldn't connect the dots. And then I looked back three months and thought, oh my gosh, I'm like a totally different person now. Like, how did I get here? And for me, that's a sign of success because they weren't attached to, uh, we're following the program steps and we're following David and we're doing these things. It, it goes back to if our effort is for them to be successful, then we have to, in my view, put more attention on their own journey, even more than we do now, and less on our own and our own methodology. This, I think, is really interesting to me because uh, perhaps you're pointing to one of the ways that coaches and coaching needs to innovate in order to, to be relevant and to be mm. impactful. Uh, and um, it, it does, you know, it's a question I've had in my own coaching yeah. is like, um, how can how can I actually support my clients to really enact the change they want? Yeah. You know, and where where am I like not bullshitting myself, but a, a little bit enamored by the impact that I have? Where yeah. am I having real impact? But where where is it? Yeah, like where am I overemphasizing the role I'm playing and how my so this so this when you talk about the like after program or the, I can't yeah. remember the, the name you use, but the, yeah, the you know, after yeah. post program. Yeah. Uh, and how that applies to coaching that fascinates me because um, for sure we can innovate the ways that we support our clients. Yeah. Like yeah. through, I don't know how that might look through AI support or yeah. micro practice or, you know, community peer to peer support. But um I'm 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 a little bit frustrated with that side of my own practice at the yeah. moment, and I'm looking for how can I innovate it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and, and again, one of the analogies that we use a lot in our program is if you were to go to a ski slope, while well, we still have glaciers and snow, until <laughs> climate change uh, takes uh, hold more, but um, and you would go to a ski resort. And you were to go observe a, a beginner's class of people who had never skied. And over here is the group of five-year-olds, and here's the group of 50-year-olds. They're, they're going to be in that class, on average, quite differently. A five-year-old has one interest, go down the hill and have fun, right? The 50-year-old is going to sit around and talk, oh, I need to learn some more about skiing. I need to kind of get, make sure I have my outfit's right. I need to not, because their primary objective is to not fall down and look stupid or and hurt themselves the, the five-year-old's criteria unless they've been socialized out of it already is to have fun and go fast right you know 
and, and so, and, and they're, they're kind of low to the ground and they're often padded. So they're not gonna get hurt that much, but they wanna go ski. And the 50 year old wants to learn how to ski or be a skier. And the five-year-old just wants to ski. And so for me, uh, it's analogous to what we're trying to do in this work of um, allowing ourselves to be able to just uh, do and then know. And so for me, that means that we need to help our clients to do the same. We focus, I think sometimes because we find it interesting as coaches, I know I do, um, we, we find value in understanding things and learning things and having insight, which are all great. Uh, and that doesn't translate into action in ways we often imagine. And so, um, you know, changing a mindset is one thing, but it comes down ultimately to changing behaviors. And so we're actually experimenting more and more of bringing all that stuff into the session, focusing on much fewer things, much smaller things, but things they can practice in the session. So we, I've, I've, I don't, I can't remember how, the, I won't say never, but it is extraordinarily rare that I set a goal with a client for after the session. Because they either, if it, I said, I tell them, there's probably very few people on the planet who care about you more than I do right now. And there's not, nobody's going to support you better than I can right now. If you can't do what it is you want to do with me, you're never going to do it on the outside world where the pressure's on. So let's, so we might just have, you know, somebody wants to give better feedback. So we, I want to distill out. So what is it that's happening right now that they're labeling as bad feedback giving? What is one thing that about that that's tripping them up or, um, and it almost never has to do with lack of skill or lack of knowledge. It has to do with lack of internal narrative and willingness to try. And so we want to create, because um, uh, we want to create the safety where people are willing to try new things with us. And so we will do, we might spend a whole hour on one small thing. Because I want to know that they, and then we will identify where's the first three opportunities you have to practice that. When will you let me know when you've done that? And so what we found is by working on those sort of more smaller skills, behind those smaller skills are big stories and big identities. That if we create enough little practices, their identity starts to shift. Their behavior starts to shift over time. But they have now beginning new muscle memory and uh, around, I, I've already seen myself, I'm somebody who can do this. Uh, and so for me, my gauge is less about how good I'm doing in a session. My gauge now is almost completely, what is this person ready, willing, and able to learn? That's my only focus. Because if the rest is moot, it doesn't matter if you're the most brilliant coach on the planet or if you're a mediocre coach. The thing that matters is what is this person willing to do, and and what with some with some scaffolding and support and and frankly love, uh, might they stretch themselves to do more? Um, and so uh, it goes back to how can I help them be successful? Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's powerful. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And um, yeah, it 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 impacts me as well. It makes me think mm -hmm. about my own work and. Um, I, I, I just want to pull out a couple of things. So like when you, when, you know, that example with giving feedback, uh, you said like, we, what's the internal narrative they might have, or we put, how can we, how would you 
in that example work with someone's internal narrative um so one of the, the easiest uh, analogies for that would be uh around uh imagine that what clients are telling us is a, a, a movie an old-fashioned movie with frames it, it it works in a digital context too but it's just it, it's anyways it's more for us old enough to remember films it's easier to talk about frames but um and it you know shows up on iMovie and stuff now too but so we, we so um so we let's imagine that we have discerned that the person um their real angst is and anxiety is about, i don't know how to start the conversation and um and so we might play a game like uh just talk about random something random and then tack on the feedback at the end like so they may talk about visiting elephants at the zoo to get them in motion so they can and then they go and what and if you had to give some feedback to the, the zoo about your experience at the zoo so they're talking about elephants and they're you know whatever with going with their kids to the zoo um and then we and then we might you know kind of warm them up have some fun with this exaggerate it kind of really play with it in an improvisational way and then we say okay so that you're now you're getting a feel for it. you actually do know how to start it but there's something about starting this kind of conversation maybe with this person or whatever that's causing you concern. And so then I would, I would either physically put a chair there or imagine the chair there. The, the first person they have to give the feedback to that they're really struggling with. And so imagine they're sitting there. So I want you to look at them and not try to say anything yet. Just notice what comes up for you. Like what's happening for you as you imagine them sitting there. And then we have them narrate their own internal experience. And then we go back to the movie analogy and we have we look at um, sort of micro movements, facial expressions, um, their self-reporting, and we just like we pause the movie. So let's unpack that. That one like five-frame segment seems to have something really critical in there. And so they might get to, and I, I might get them to walk through all five frames of their story, you know, as they're imagining in their in their body and in their mind. And then there'll be one of those frames, perhaps where that you can say that they often will settle back in their chair and they go, oh. <laughs> and so it might be like maybe they had a parent who uh, chastised them constantly when they grew up, always was talking about how deficient they were, or ne was never good enough. And, and, that, and, that, and so that in their body is this lived experience and it's micro trauma experience of uh, being uh, belittled or never really celebrated. And so there's that fear, oh, I'm going to be like that, and, and I don't want to come across that way, and I know how that feels. And, and so then we might help them kind of uh, what we think of as compost that old narrative, right? Give it back to the ground and let it, let it be. And so, um, and then go back to, well, what, what is your intent for this person? And, um, and so that as they find a new sort of uh, foundation from which to start, and then again, it goes back to, it's, it, um, uh, like if you remember like when you were learning how to ride a bicycle which you know being in Holland you'd have to do pretty early on <laughs> <laughs> and the, the gift of how children are exposed that so quickly but the hardest thing for a child about learning how to ride a bike is getting started that first pedal where you know, it's all wobbly and just, you're not going anywhere yet so the momentum is not helping you and the same thing is true for giving feedback most clients struggle because they don't know how to get started and so we then practice starts till they find one that works for them. So they come up with a cliche or an opening line 
that they use as scaffolding until they make it their own and find their own comfort. Um, but we're trying to work with their own narration, their own experience narrating with what's that making available to them about what's um, impeding them at the moment and what can they draw from that would give them that scaffolding to get started in the place they've identified as the most problematic for them. Mm, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's super helpful. Um, and I, I'm, you know, again, like I really appreciate that like micro way of working with someone, both in terms of like zooming in and, and teasing out what's yeah. going on, but also like focusing on one thing, you know, and then yeah. what you said, like, what did they want to learn? Like, yeah. I think that was the way you spoke yeah. about it. Um, or what are they ready to, what are they ready to learn? Right. Yeah. Um, like, cause I know we haven't, we haven't got that long left, but I want to, I do want to talk to you about the, um, integrative development practitioner program. And, mm -hmm. um, I got excited about that cause I think it fits yeah. in if, if obviously we've been talking about it in a way with like, yeah. what's this, if we just, cause I did, I, I'm playing around that with myself. Like what if I'd actually coaching is something I do. But it's, yeah. it's not like I'm a coach, you know, right. that suddenly feels way more expansive and yeah. brings up, it's freeing, you know, even yeah. in a narrative sense, it's like yeah. massively freeing. So um, what, in, could you tell us about the program itself? And yeah. um, I particularly want to talk to you about uh, the, yeah, the, the modules as well. Cause I, I thought, again, that really resonate with the topic, the titles of those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I, so I have, there's sort of three bodies of work that I teach. So one is narrative coaching. That's the one I'm most well known for and have been for the last 20 years. Um, <clears throat> when I started doing more, uh, organizational projects, um, I realized that they all fell into the same pattern. Um, and so I thought, well, if I'm going to teach that pattern, I need to understand what it is. And so I sort of, um, realized it's, it initially, it was bringing uh, adult learning and development and organization learning and development into one practice, and which it still is, but it's now expanded way beyond that. But it's a way of thinking about learning and development very differently. And then we also teach a narrative release program, which is basically advanced narrative coaching, it's taking a narrative coaching into dealing with uh, difficult issues like trauma and grief. Um, and uh, what I what I suspected all along, but I, I needed to kind of vet you know in, in the market and in my own thinking and teaching is that all three of the programs have the same philosophical foundation it's a lot of what we've talked about today here um, and so what we're doing with the idp program is that we're um, i'm working on the next book we're developing a whole global learning community around id um, and so the way we've shifted this is to realize again that um there's a common philosophy that you don't need um, to keep, you know, going back to that. And so the program basically says, here's the five modules that are the, the very best of the first half of all three of our programs. So even if you've studied narrative coaching with us in the past, you're now getting the ID start, you're getting that narrative release start. So you're now having like the, it's like the penultimate program in many ways. And it will teach you the philosophy and uh, um, to be able to work like this. So it's a shift in yourself. And so we bring together five areas of development. So personal development, spiritual development, 
professional development, social development, and contextual development. Um, we bring all those together into one practice so that you will leave at the end of this as a, an integrative development practitioner. And then you can choose to come back for one of our three current certifications, depending on what you most want to do with this. So you could come back and get certified as a narrative coach because you, you like working in the coaching space, but now you want to bring not only the narrative frame, but the ID frame to your coaching. You might say, hey, I work in a university or I work at a company. This sounds really cool. I want to build programs this way. So then come back and get the ID and design certification to know how to design projects and programs. You might say, you know, I'm, I work more in the mental health or therapeutic space. The narrative release certification makes more sense to me. But, uh, and I started to realize that the, the students who had the hardest time in our programs or at our retreats were the ones who could never make the shift to this philosophy. They were too attached to their own identity or their own way of being. And, and the beauty, and so that once people made that shift, then everything else became so much simpler for them. But the beauty of this, I want to be really clear about this. We're not saying this is replacing something else. This is not a, just another thing because it's integrative for you. So your background, Joel, as we have some similarities and we have some differences. So I don't want you to be like me. You don't want, you know, um, I want to help you take the integrative development frame and say, what are the threads that I bring to this? What is the tapestry I could weave out of my own background about who I am, what I've been trained in, what I've done with my career. And so the ID becomes a, a way of life. It's a philosophy that then translates into how you serve the clients that you serve in ways that are important to you. And so in our program, we have people from all over the map uh, in terms of what they actually do in their day job. Um, uh, but um, they all are trying to bring a very different way. So we've got um, just as a small example of that, we've got three students who don't know each other, but they all work in different ways with reimagining how to serve homeless kids. And so they're working on a project together using ID to say, how would we create a curriculum and a, a support system for them that actually might be more useful to them and more appropriate for them? We have another group that's working on um, bringing ID into higher education. If we thought about education this way, like ID does, how would we need to reorganize our classrooms? And so for me, coaching is a piece of that as a methodology, as a delivery system, as a way of working with people. But ultimately, we found we've had people who have thanked us for saving their marriages um, <laughs> Uh, and for helping them step into this next phase of their life or as a, maybe an elder, or, um, because it just becomes a way that we live. And, you know, so I think about like the last time we met, you know, it was a really difficult place in my life. You know, the mm -hmm. session you were at wasn't one of the best I've done. It was uh, interesting in so many ways. But I look back now and that this was sort of the formative stage of me trying to move through my own journey. And so now I feel like I've come out the other side of that Still, the narrative coaching still is great and powerful and as it was before. I'm proud of what we've created. Um, but now I, I don't need it that way anymore. I, it's, it's just become part of who I am and how I work. And, and we've noticed this a lot for our students that they 
are finding ways to not make this another ism to follow, but more a, a liberation and a freedom to be their full self. And so that's what we're after. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's that's beautiful. And um, I, I'm touched as well to hear about your journey and, and yeah. um, um, the, the necessity in these times yeah. for practitioners of this kind, you know, um, yeah. as uh, the, you know, I, I, th I think about that a lot. Like, I like the way you're expanding. I think about it a lot for coaches. How do we need to evolve and mm -hmm. uh, disrupt ourselves to be relevant in these times and yeah. you're working in that field. And so, um, and, and, and with a lot of these um, modes of being like a lot of working in presence, sensing yeah. the field, um, holding space for change, yeah. Yeah. Uh, alchemy, you know, which I yeah. think are, are qualities of these times that are needed, yeah. you know, like as yeah. we move out of the, uh, well, it is my, my wish maybe, but as we, as we kind of try and reconcile the, mm -hmm. the ways that the enlightenment era and the industrial revolution have narrowed our, our ways yeah. of being, together in the world and brought so many gifts but yeah uh, it feels feels like we're we're breaking out of some of the limitations of that now and I, I hear that in your work so yeah and it's the ability to take our work into places we might not have gone so we have a, another student who um yeah was quite involved in the black lives matter space as a white woman herself and you know lives in geographically in a space in her town that's often at the intersection of the black lives matter uh, leaders and movement and white supremacists. And so she's, she stood vigil for like 90 days to support that process um, using ID. And she said, that's what kept me going was not, not that I was having to teach or do anything because no one asked me for my opinion, but just navigating a field that was emerging every day in this tension and this sort of, and that's, you know, it's happening everywhere around uh, economic in, uh, inequity and climate change and what does it mean to be a citizen and you know what do we do with the pandemic and you know and, and it, I'm involved I'm working with Joel over at ICF on an AI piece and um, and so we for me it, it goes back to where I started with the doctor uh, lovely guy and I, I wanted him to be more helpful and I, I, I think he felt so bad that he could not but I look at there's so many um, there's a lot to be afraid of, I suppose, in the world at the moment, but there's also extraordinary opportunities. Um, but for me, it means that coaches, we need to be in different conversations. Uh, we can't be debating, well, this psychology or that psychology, it doesn't really matter that much anymore. And so I think for those of us that are willing to be kind of um, pioneers together and explore what else is possible, how do we take what we know and, and do so well into new places um, to help have new conversations? And, um, and I think, you know, it's just, uh, if we wait for the world to come to us as coaches, I think we're gonna be left behind. Mm -hmm. um, we have to be, I think on our, as my Aussie friends would say, kind of more in our front foot to imagine how do we bring our um, capacity as fellow human beings to our clients uh, in new ways. Um, and so for me, that it, it all comes back to, um, it's less about what I know and more about who I become. And so that our IDP program is really about who would you like to become? And then once you have um, 
made that shift in yourself, then pretty much anything is possible. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I feel that's a nice place to yeah. bring our conversation to a close. Like it's a call to action, you know, yeah. um, one that I'm feeling uh, yeah. that we need to heed and that I'm feeling called to heed in these times. So I just want to thank you for, for uh, your generosity in this conversation and um, obviously obvious expertise. And, uh, you know, I, I do, I mean yeah. that, you know, like yeah, I, know. I feel yeah. like you're, you're, um, you're somebody that's like poking at the field of coaching and yeah. inviting us to go beyond that. And I think that's essential. So I, mm -hmm. I really appreciate that, David. You're welcome, Joel. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, where, where can we find out about your work? I nearly forgot to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're, uh, we're, I mean, uh, we're in, uh, in the midst of upgrading this website again, as you do these days, but um, you can find us at themomentinstitute.com. And you can read about our program and we've got a number of different kinds of events. We're actually launching our first uh, three month long virtual retreat because I don't know when I'll be able to travel again. So we're doing that or for those who want that more personal experience and you can read about all of our programs and, and, and whatnot. So great. Yeah. Thanks.